with us. We are in part six of our seven-part series through the book of Ezekiel, and I've entitled this message, Radical Restoration. For those of you that have been here, have you enjoyed the book of Ezekiel? It's been a good series. Have you enjoyed it? Uh, I, I've loved it. I'm very confident that this has been the best sermon series through the book of Ezekiel that you've ever heard because I'm equally confident it's the only sermon series through the book of Ezekiel you've ever heard. But seriously, Pastor Lance has done an amazing job. I'm really happy to be able to give him a breather this weekend, but he'll be back next weekend to finish off the series. Now, one of the biggest themes that we see throughout Scripture is the theme of restoration, the theme of restoration. There are so many stories that we find in the Bible of people who are in bad situations, who get themselves in all sorts of problematic situations, and God steps in, and he redeems, and he restores, and he reconciles. I think about, for example, one of my favorite stories, the story of Joseph back in the book of Genesis, where Joseph, I mean, things go so badly for him. His brothers sell him into slavery. Then while he's enslaved, he ends up getting thrown in prison. And yet, even as he's in prison, God is working behind the scenes and working behind the scenes and working behind the scenes until eventually God raises him up. He gets Joseph out of prison, gets him to the point where he's now the number two person in command in all of Egypt. He's able to help the land and the people prepare for an upcoming famine so that the people have enough food to eat. He gets to the point where the very brothers who, who, who sold him into slavery come to him, and they come to him for help, and he's able to say, hey, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. And he said, I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to take care of you. It's such a powerful story. In fact, my wife and I, we named our youngest son after Joseph from this story because we just had a feeling his brother might try to sell him into slavery. But no. Just kidding. Because one one of the things we want our kids to understand about God, I was just talking about them, talking about this with them again last night because I was telling them, I was telling the story, is we want them to understand God's always working behind the scenes. He's always working behind the scenes, even when we don't see it, right? Or I think about the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple. Those are books we've studied here at Bridgeway in the last few years, where, where the people of God get sent into exile because of their disobedience. And after decades of exile, and by the way, the book of Ezekiel that we're studying was written during that exile. After decades of exile, they're allowed to return to the land and rebuild their temple. And the temple was the center of their worship and was so fundamental to their identity as the people of God and the re- the reconstruction of the temple was a cause for such joy and celebration. Or I think about the stories that Jesus would tell, uh, perhaps his most famous story, right? The story of the prodigal son, where there's a young man who goes to his father and basically says, Father, you're dead to me. Give me my share of the inheritance and let me go off and do my own thing. And the son takes the inheritance, goes off into a different land, blows all of the money, making all sorts of bad decisions, winds up impoverished and destitute, and then just decides on a, uh, one day he's going, man, maybe I can just go back to my father's house and maybe he would allow me to be one of his servants. I mean, certainly they live a lot better than I'm living right now. And, and if you know the story, you know the son returns and, and the father upon seeing his son come back will have no, no, no business with this servant talk. He welcomes him back into the family. He runs to him. He embraces him and he celebrates that his son who had, who had gone away has been restored back to the family, right? Or I think about at the very end of scripture in Revelation chapter 21, we get this picture of restored creation. Because see, if we, if we go back one step, the Bible from beginning to end is one big story of restoration. God makes a perfect world, Genesis 1 and 2. That world is wrecked by sin in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam, Adam and Eve rebel against God, setting humanity on a course where we rebel against God. And yet God loves us so much that he begins a restoration process that begins in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And God continues to call out to his people and despite the rebellion that took place in the nation of Israel, God continues to call them to himself and call them to himself and call them to himself. And then Jesus, the son of God, steps on the scene, announces the arrival 
of God's kingdom. And what does he do? He lives a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, a penalty we could not pay ourselves. He rises from the dead so that we might know that our sin will not have the final word, that our Jesus is victorious over Satan's sin and death. And then to get back to Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, it paints a picture of a future day where there will be, it tells us about a new city, a new heavens and a new earth. And it says the dwelling place of God will be with people. And it says that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come together in the presence of God. And there will be no more violence. There will be no more pain. There will be no more racism or sexism or tribalism or any of the other isms that cause so much pain in the world. There will be restoration. And by the way, if we, are, if we are followers of Christ, for any of us who are Christ followers in this room today, that story of restoration is one that we are meant to receive its benefits, that we are allowed, that we get to celebrate, that we have been restored, we have been brought back into the family of God despite our sin. And yet we are called to participate in that story as well. The Bible says that we are ministers of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That is, God is seeking to call a lost world back to himself, that he uses us to do it, that we are part of that process. Now, it's no accident, given the centrality of restoration to the story of scripture, that stories of restoration capture our hearts. I think about true stories, like those captured in books like Just Mercy or Unbroken. I think about stories from the world of fiction, like Beauty and the Beast or Jane Eyre, or Lord of the Rings, or Les Mes, right? These are powerful stories of restoration and redemption. And once again, the centrality of these stories to Scripture and our own and the popularity of these stories in our world is not an accident. God is a God of restoration. He's a God of restoration. And he has made us in his image. So we are meant to love these stories and love these ideas because God has placed eternity in our hearts and made us people who long for the restoration that only he can give. And yet, if we're gonna talk about restoration, we need to talk about the reality that there's an uncomfortable element to restoration. Because if something needs to be restored, it first has to be what? <laughs> broken. It first has to be broken, right? Uh, maybe you've seen these, these companies, uh, I've, I see these vans driving around town advertising restoration services, right? organizations, maybe you work for a company like this, where they say, if you've had like fire and smoke damage and, and flood and water and, and mold or anything go on in your house, they will come in and they will help restore what has been broken. Which by the way, I've always thought being a receptionist for a company like that would be a really stressful job. Everybody who calls you is panicking all the time. There's no like, yeah, we'd be happy to come out next Thursday. It's like, no, I need you now. <laughs> anyway, in a world where fires and earthquakes and flood and mold didn't destroy, we wouldn't need those companies, would we? But those things do destroy, so we need restoration. The world of fiction, the beast's restorative journey of finding true love and beauty in the beast would not be necessary if his own arrogance and cruelty had not led to him being placed under a curse. The redemption of Jean Valjean in Les Mes, one of my all-time favorite plays, would not be necessary if not for his original prison sentence and then Inspector Javert who really had it out for him. Restoration always begins with something breaking. And it's one thing if we're gonna talk about the breaking of physical structures due to fire or flood. But if we're gonna talk about our lives breaking and our lives being in need of restoration, at the root of that, there is often going to be some sort of rebellion against God's design, either rebellion by us or rebellion done to us. I mean, if we look at the biblical examples we cited earlier, in every case, restoration was necessary because people turned their back on God. For, for each of us, we need the forgiveness that has been freely offered to us through Christ because we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. Now, whether we're comfortable or admitting it or not, all of us, myself included, have rebelled against God. And I'm just talking about today. <laughs> Some of us, just more broadly in the course of our lives, 
we've rebelled against God intentionally. We know what God asks of us, and we've chosen to go a different direction and live our own way. Some of us, we have rebelled against God arrogantly, trusting in our own goodness and our own good deeds and believing by doing enough good things, we have earned the Father's love and approval. Some of us, we've rebelled against God ignorantly, simply living unaware of God's call in our lives to love him and follow him. Now, some of us, we look back on our whole lives, we're like, man, I think I got all three and a few more that you haven't mentioned, right? The truth is, this rebellion is not something we can atone for on our own. We, once again, need the forgiveness and restoration that can only come from God, and God is so gracious and kind that he offers it to us through Jesus Christ. And when God heals us and redeems us and restores us, the Bible does not say that when that happens, we go from being bad people to good people. That's not how it works. The Bible uses much stronger language than that. It says that we go from death to life. We go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Or the Bible uses the language of we go from darkness into light. And then we're given a new heart and a new mind and the Holy Spirit to guide us. And when we experience this sort of healing and cleansing, we discover a powerful truth. And it's, the truth is the fill in the blank if you're following along either on the app or on the handout you've received when you, front, when you walked in. It's a powerful truth that we can base our lives on. And it's this, God's power to restore is greater than our power to rebel. God's power to restore is greater than our power to rebel. Our sin may be great, but I'm here to tell you, God's love is greater. We, we can be, we can be like the lost son squandering our father's resources in all ways and kinds of stupidity. When we turn back, we have a father who runs to us in love. We can be like the lost sheep wandering outside of our father's care, and he graciously and lovingly will come to look for us to restore us. We are humans who seemingly cannot help but rebel, but we serve a God who passionately loves us, and he is so willing to forgive us and redeem us and restore us. Can somebody say amen? I'm just wondering. Now, we have seen plenty of rebellion in our series through the book of Ezekiel. If you're new or if you've missed some of the series, I will very briefly get you caught up. The book was written, like I said, when the Jewish people were in exile, an exile in Babylon that was punishment for years and years of disobedience. In week one of the series, we talked about Ezekiel getting a vision from heaven and seeing the extraordinary greatness of God. From there, in week two, God revealed Ezekiel's mission to him. He was to speak to these exiled people about the depth of their rebellion Then in week three, and if you were here for week three, I'm very confident that you remember it because, man, was it weird. Oh, my gosh. It was so weird because Pastor Lance walked us through some of the radical and wild things that God had Ezekiel do to demonstrate to the people just how wicked they had become. I will not be recapping those for you. You're welcome. In week four, we learned that the primary problem that plagued Israel was idolatry. They had worshiped other gods above Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They desired to adopt the religious practices of the nations around them. And then last week, we said that another huge problem that Israel faced was that their leaders were corrupt. I mean, the whole series has been great, but especially last week, if you weren't here, if you lead anything, go listen to last week's message because Pastor Lance talked about just the importance of good leadership and how, excuse me, how badly things can go when leadership goes south. In the case of Israel, their leaders were corrupt and selfish and disobedient to the Lord. And well, that caused the kind of problems you would expect. So in other words, up to this point in the book of Ezekiel, we've seen a lot of rebellion. We've learned about its causes, and we've learned about its consequences. I think you'll agree, if you've been here for the series, it has not been particularly warm and fuzzy. I mean, who doesn't love a good feel-good message about sin and judgment, right? Like, yay, right? But today, we're going to begin to see glimpses of radical hope in the book of Ezekiel, even though 
Israel has rejected God and rejected God and rejected God. We're going to see God continuing to pursue them and continuing to seek after their restoration. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. If you need a Bible, there should be one underneath a seat near you. If you're using one of those, it's going to be on page 707. And if you haven't been here for the rest of the series, what we're doing is we're tackling big kind of themes of Ezekiel and doing that by bouncing around to different passages. So we've got a few passages we're going to cover today, Ezekiel 20 being the first one. So we're going to start reading in verse 32. Ezekiel 20, 32, it says this. This is, uh, this is God speaking. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship God and, or excuse me, worship wood and stone. So we just talked about how Israel's problem was idolatry. They wanted to chase after other gods. They wanted to be like the nations around them, even though that would be just disastrous for them and it would pull them away from Yahweh, their God, the God of the Bible. <laughs> and I love in this verse, like, God basically says no. He just goes full parent mode on them. It's like, that is a terrible idea. I know better than you. We're not doing that. We're not doing this whole worship little gods made of wood and stone anymore. Verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And you're like, I thought you said this was about hope. We'll get there. So this language is very similar to language used to describe the Exodus, when God used Moses to rescue the people of Israel from slavery, and they went out and they wandered in the desert. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says this. You'll notice some similar language. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, this was all meant to be a basis for Israel's obedience, that God is reminding them, hey, remember, I rescued you. I have your best interests at heart. And remember, I was able to overcome your adversaries. I'm powerful. In other words, because of this, you can trust me. In fact, the very next verse basically says, because I have done this, Obey the Sabbath. It's a basis for their obedience. God's saying, you can trust me. Also, in this passage here in Ezekiel, this is one of the only places in the book where God references his own kingship. Now, in other places in Scripture, God mentions that he's Israel's king as a means of comfort. This is not about comfort. This is about power and authority. Like if any of you are parents and you've ever had that, those kind of just a general situation where like maybe your kid is acting out and you go the comfort route first, like, hey, it's all right, bud, I'm here for you, we're gonna be okay. And then they keep acting out and you have to switch to like, hey, I'm in charge here, knock it off, right? That's sort of what God is doing here. With, with Israel after the Exodus, it was, hey, mighty hand, outstretched arm, I'm, I'm, I, I'll take care of you, I'm powerful, you can trust me. <laughs> here it's like, hey, mighty hand, outstretched arm, don't mess with me, <laughs> right? That's essentially what's going on. But here, in previous passages, he says, hey, I'm your king as a means of comfort. Here, it's about power and authority. It's as though God is saying to the people, remember who you ultimately serve. I am your king. I have the power to save you. I have the power to discipline you. I have the power to bring judgment upon you. He's like, I'm not some little plaything made of wood and stone to this people who wants to chase after who want to chase after other gods. God says remember who your king is. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I just can't help but be reminded that that is a message that I need to hear often. And I wonder if maybe I'm not the only one who needs to hear it. We don't generally make statues of wood and stone to worship, but man, we make gods out of all sorts of other things, right? We make false gods out of our money, out of our comfort, out of our reputations, out of our jobs. We get impressed with education or intellect or cultural influence. Like None of those things are bad, of course, but they're lousy gods. 
And when we get overly impressed with those things, it's easy to forget who our king is. We have a king, and it's not us, right? Let's keep going, verse 38. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter. If you will not listen to me, but by my holy name, you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols." Excuse me, my holy name you shall no longer profane. God is saying there's going to be a new Exodus experience. As the original Exodus, the nation of Israel was rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Now you will be rescued out of, out of captivity in Babylon. There's going to be a new experience of judging and sorting those who wish to continue in their idolatry and continue to separate themselves from me. God says, I'm going to say, fine, they're going to be allowed to do so. But God says, I am God. I'm not going to be mocked anymore by my people profaning my name in my land. It reminds me of the old C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe you've heard this one, where C.S. Lewis says, there are two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, have it your way. I submit to you that C.S. Lewis is right. And I submit to you that we ought to choose very carefully what kinds of people we will be. The text continues, and despite all of this rebellion, despite so many in Israel wanting to remain obstinate and continue in their false worship, the ring of hope comes starting in verse 40. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God and all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them. And there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all of your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed." Verse 44, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Okay, there's kind of a lot going on in this passage, and it's all like restoration, yay, we're coming back to the land and all of that. Did you happen to catch what it says in verse 43? <laughs> and God says, oh, and by the way, y'all are going to remember what you did and you're not gonna feel great about it. What's up with that? You and I, when we step out of line, there is value in remembering our deeds and their consequences because it helps motivate us to say, never again. Similarly, restoration, for restoration to happen, misdeeds must be named. They must be named. Restoration is not sweeping things under the rug. Restoration is naming the wrong that has taken place and working to heal from it. We are called as Christ followers to a regular practice of confession, right? We are called to confess to God, and the Bible says in the book of James, we're con to confess our sins to each other. That doesn't mean we need to confess our sins to everybody, and it certainly doesn't mean anyone has the right to demand confession from you. But part of being a healthy Christian is having people around, trusted people around us to whom we can confess. And there is a healing power that is in that. And, and, and in saying that, I want to make sure we understand that confession is not for our condemnation, it is for our healing. And sin that we refuse to confess continues to fester. God gives us confession as a means of healing. And then more than that, I'm a firm believer that confession must be specific. That it's one thing, even, even just praying just this morning, God, would you, God, I, I find myself praying this like general prayer of confession and even trying to practice what I'm gonna tell you today. I'm going, no, God, help me. I'm gonna look back over these last 24 hours. Where was I out of line? God, as I prepare to bring your word this morning, where is there something in me where my motivation is impure? Like whatever it is, God, I wanna be very specific because I want specific cleansing. I want specific healing. I want to get to a place of wholeness, right? 
So there is a place for us to remember, and God says you're going to do that. But then it ends again in verse 44 with God saying, try as you might to ruin everything. I will bring about restoration. He says, you can keep rebelling, but I will find a way to restore. My holiness, God says, will be found in my ability to restore my people to their land. He says, the evil that you have committed will be, ex will be exposed for what it is, but, and this is something for us to remember today, church, in the end, God will show himself to be great. Not all of the other things we place our hope in, God will show himself to be great. He will show himself to be great in the way that he defeats sin. He will show himself to be great in the way that he overcomes our idolatry. He will show himself to be great in the way that he redeems and restores and saves his people. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Despite this glimpse of a hopeful future, the people are still in exile. They're dealing with the consequences of their sin, and they are in despair. We're going to start in verse 10. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. Verse 10, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Decided to go with a little dramatic reading just to give you a sense of what's going on here. This is the mindset of people in exile, by the way. They're whining, plain and simple. And the word translated rot away, by the way, is the same word used to describe gangrenous flesh. And this situation, you're welcome for that mental picture. This situation that they're in, they're in exile, they're facing the consequences of their rebellion. It was foretold, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 26, where there's a whole section on the consequences for disobedience. Read it to your children. It's great bedtime reading. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Leviticus 26, 38 says, and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And they're like, it's happening! Leviticus 26 is happening! That's how I like to picture it. But they're just full of self-pity. And self-pity is really dangerous for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it is incredibly disempowering. When we get called out for things that we do wrong and we immediately turn inward to self-pity, that is wasted energy. First of all, we are moving from a situation in which we have done wrong and we are now trying to make ourselves the victim. Oh, woe is me. This is so terrible. What has happened to me, right? Similarly, when we spend energy on self-pity, it's energy that isn't being spent making changes, owning our mistakes, apologizing, repenting, finding a way forward. In this instance, the people are dealing with the just and right consequences of their sin, but all they're doing is whining. And yet no sooner have they made their complaint then they're given hope. Look what God says next, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O Israel? God says, listen, I'm getting no pleasure out of watching you deal with the consequences of your rebellion. <laughs> See, God is a lot more mature than we are. Like, duh. Like, God doesn't want the people that hurt him to suffer. God wants the people that hurt him to be restored. He wants them to change, right? He, he wants them to be healed. See, some of us have this picture of God, like up in heaven with a beard and a lightning bolt, ready to like smite us for some sort of misdeed, right? And that's simply not true. The Bible talks in different places. I think about 2 Peter chapter 3, about how God is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would, would reach repentance. And what we have to understand, too, when we are stuck in our sin, so much of the consequences for sin that we experience are connected to the action itself. It's not like when we step out of line, God is trying, like, we'll try to find some random way to punish us. God calls sin, sin because it hurts us. So like, I'll give you an example. The Bible talks a lot about the dangers of greed. 
Jesus says, be on your guard against every form of greed. There's all sorts of stuff about be careful of the love of money. There's all sorts in there about generosity. And here's the deal. If you and I give ourselves over to greed, it's not like God's gonna all of a sudden like, well, now you're gonna have a flat tire and your HVAC is gonna go out and all this like random bad stuff's gonna happen to you because you're greedy. That's not how it works. The consequences of greed are built into the action itself. So for example, if we become obsessed with money, it is almost certainly going to harm our relationships, right? And the quality of the relationships we have is going to suffer because we will value people or we will value possessions and money over people, right? Uh, we, will be finan- we will feel financially insecure because once we have made greed our God, there is never enough and we always need more. Uh, greed will give, greed manifests itself in all sorts of destructive behaviors, anything from workaholism to a gambling addiction and on and on and on I could go. That's how sin works. So God calls us away from those things because they are harmful to us. God says to Israel, would you turn away from your wicked ways and live? That's what he wants. To a people wallowing in self-pity, God says it's not over. There is hope for you yet. I wonder if there are some of us here today feeling the weight of our own rebellion against God who need to hear that if there is breath in your lungs, your fate is not sealed. If there is breath in your lungs, your fate is not sealed. God is a holy God who punishes sin, but God takes no pleasure in our efforts to separate ourselves from him. And listen, church, he delights in our return. He delights in our return. Let's continue, verse 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Then I say to the righteous that he shall surely live. Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right, and he shall live. The point of this passage is really simple. The person that has done good deeds, keep at it. You don't just get to like do some good deeds and then all of a sudden like chase other gods and reject God and like just, hey, well, there are all these good deeds in the past. God's like, that's not how it works. But the point of the passage is not to talk to that person. The point of the passage is to talk to the rebellious person, which was all of Israel at that time, and let them know that there is an offer of restoration that comes with repentance, that even as they have rejected God and rejected God and rejected God, God's message towards them is that they can return and that God would welcome them back. And look at what it says at the end. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against them. He shall surely live. See, God promises throughout scripture that for those who would turn to him in faith and ask for forgiveness, that when he forgives our sin, that forgiveness is radical and total. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far, the Bible says, has God removed his transgressions from us. The New Testament uses the imagery of our sin being nailed to the cross when we turn to God in faith. Back to Ezekiel. Even with the promise of restoration, the people are continuing to complain. Verse 17. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. When it's their own way that's not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is not just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. God cites that they're, say, they're claiming that God is not just. Which, first of all, if you or I ever reach a moment where we're ready to accuse God of not being just, it might be time for a look in the mirror. God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. And I know we're really smart and really educated and really sophisticated, but God knows what is good better than we do, right? 
So he says, you think I'm not just? You're the one who's unjust, and he reminds them, and he has been really, really, really clear with them. He's like, guys, how many times do I have to tell you? If you continue in your rebellion, it will lead to your death, but if you turn to me, you may live. The claim that God is not just is just evidence of the deception of a hard heart, right? God is perfectly just. He is a perfect judge. And I mean, just consider their situation. Again, Ezekiel has preached to them again and again and again, and they still cannot wrap their minds around God's justice. They recognize their own sin, but they're still making excuses for their situation rather than leaning in to repentance. And let's, let's come on, let's bring that into this room to today. Our situation is not all that different. We're not exiles living in a foreign land but we're people who both individually and collectively have been separated from a holy God by our sin. And yet God, who knows the depth of our sin better than anyone else, God, who knows all of the stuff that we don't tell anybody, offers us redemption and forgiveness and freedom. And we cannot claim that God has not been clear. He has given us his word. He has given us Jesus who died on the cross to show us the depth of his love. And he has given us an invitation into his family, an invitation we receive by faith, an invitation we cannot work for, but again, we must receive. This is the promise of redemption, and it's ours in Christ. Our perfect judge, who we have offended with our rebellion, says your penalty is paid, All that is left for us is to turn toward him in repentance and faith and find forgiveness and favor. So, you and I, we can keep making excuses or we can call a duck a duck, we can own what's ours, we can turn back to God in repentance and faith. One of those choices keeps us stuck. The other helps us move forward. But then there's the question, what does it look like when we do that? What is, the, what is the work that God does when we turn to him in repentance and faith? To answer that question, we're gonna go Ezekiel chapter 36, just a few pages over. Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're gonna start in verse 22. It says this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name by which, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, the exile was necessary after years and years and years and decades of rebellion and warning, God finally calls it and the people are sent into exile. But that created a problem because Israel was created to bring God glory and show the nations who he is. It's a little difficult to do that when you're stuck in exile. And God will go to great lengths for a lot of different things. And two of the things he will go to great lengths for are the glory of his name and the knowledge of him among the peoples of the earth. So something needed to change for Israel to fulfill their purpose. And he makes it really clear in this passage that he is going to act decisively not because the people are great. He's going to act because he is great. And (laughs) Pastor Heather and I were talking about this passage earlier this week. I think like three of you are going to find this funny, but we're going with it anyway because I think it was hilarious. And we're talking about, and I'm talking about how, yeah, you know, I mean, all this restoration talk, God's talking about how he's going to restore Israel, even though they're super messed up, he's doing it because they're really great. And she she goes, so God's basically saying, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Except it's not some chicken breakup line. It's God saying the reason why he's going to redeem them and restore them. He's like, no, 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 I'm not doing this because you're awesome. You definitely are not. I'm doing it because I'm awesome. I'm doing it because I'm awesome. And then look what God does. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God gathers a scattered people and gives them a land. This is similar language to the promises of land 
that came after the Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy. God gathers scattered people and gives them a land. And in our day, God scatters lonely people and gives them community, right? Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God, God cleanses us from the filth of our unrighteousness. God says to, to, to Israel, I will cleanse you from the filth that comes from your fascination with your idols. See, when God calls us, he makes us clean. The New Testament uses washing metaphors to describe the work that God does when we turn to him. Titus 3 talks about God saving us, not because of our righteous works we have done, not us, it's him, but because of his own mercy. And that, that with that comes a washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That there are times in scripture, I think about Isaiah chapter one, where God tells his people, literally, wash yourselves off physically, and the removal of dirt from your skin is a symbol of the spiritual cleansing I will do. Right. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is so kind to us that he will replace our stubborn, rebellious, self-centered heart with a heart that longs to know him and obey him. And just real quick, we just had Valentine's Day. We need to forget everything that Hallmark has taught us because in the ancient world, the heart was not about emotion. In the ancient world, the heart was your center of thinking and intellect. So in the ancient world, they would use heart in the same way that we would talk about our minds. So if you wanna talk about in the ancient world where your lovey-dovey feelings come from, it is not from your heart, it is from your bowels. So, if you want to be biblical, in the cards that you give to your person. Forget this I love you from the bottom of my heart nonsense. Try on I love you from the depths of my intestines. Just give that a try, let me know how it goes. But anyways, a heart of stone is cold and distant and unresponsive. A heart of flesh is warm and soft and full of life. And while it's true that in the ancient world, the heart was our center of thinking and intellect, this still would have reflected relational closeness. So much of our relationships is in our minds and the way that we think, because that affects the way that we act, right? This is a total change. This is what God can do. And then the spirit was about feelings. I will put my spirit in you, God says, so that you will now desire to follow me, the one, you, the one who loves you the most. He says, from now on, you will be guided by my spirit. And this same spirit lives in us. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, promised the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 8 tells us that we are to live according to the spirit, not, to, not to the, according to the deeds of our sinful desires. And then it says this, starting in verse 28. We're, 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 God, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit within us. And then this, verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you, and I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, and you may never again suffer the disgrace and famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O Israel. Thus says the Lord God, verse 33, on, that, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt." And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate 
has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord, and I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Verse 37, thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's a picture of restoration, isn't it? Broken down cities rebuilt, empty cities full of people, land that was gripped by famine, abundant, and on and on I could go. And it's a beautiful picture. Now, if you, like me, have the spiritual gift of cynicism, you may have picked up on something in this passage, and that is God says his whole reason for doing this is for his name's sake. It doesn't say, hey, Israel, I'm gonna do this for you because I am super loving and I love you so much. He says he's doing it for the glory of his name. What is up with that? If I, as a father, give my child a gift and I say to my child, I am giving you this gift for the glory of my name, that all of Placer County would know that I am an amazing father. You'd be like, what is wrong with you, <laughs> The answer here is really simple. In this case, what is a character flaw for us is virtuous for God. We are simple and flawed human beings. God is the creator and sustainer of everything that was, everything that is, and everything that shall be. There is nothing higher than him. There is nothing beyond him. There is nothing greater than him. Uh, you and I, we say things like, man, I'd like to be a part of something bigger than myself. And that is a great thing. God does not say that. And the reason why God does not say that is because God cannot do that. He is the greatest thing. God is not sitting up in heaven going, to what greater purpose can I give my existence? Right? He is the greatest purpose. For God to point all of humanity to himself is not egomaniacal. It is gracious and loving and kind because God has made us to know him and to find our joy in him. To point us to anything else would not make sense. God does not need our praise and adoration. Rather, God knows that we need to praise and adore him because that is what we have been made for. Last passage, and we're going to get out. We'll pray and get out of here. Ezekiel chapter 29, starting in verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in the land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. And I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Those are some beautiful promises right there. And I'm telling you, don't miss next week when Pastor Lance is back and he closes this series out with an incredible message of hope from the end of this wild and crazy book. God's power to restore is greater than our power to rebel, y'all. And we can celebrate that fact, not as people in exile, but as 21st century Christians who can look back to the cross and see God's answer to our rebellion. We can know that our sin and rebellion has been paid in full, that if we would turn to him in repentance and faith, all he has for us is love and welcome and favor. Now, I wanna pray as we close, and, and as we do that, we're talking about restoration today. 
And I'm very aware of the fact that in a room this size, there are a lot of us who need restoration in a lot of different areas. Some of us need spiritual restoration. That we, that we would say, yeah, I am living in rebellion against God. I am like that prodigal son, and I need to return and re- to, to, to receive the Father's loving care. Or, or some of us, maybe you, you're, you say, I'm not even a Christian. I need to become a Christian today. I need the ultimate in, in, in spiritual restoration. But then there are others of us who maybe you need physical restoration, that you're dealing with something in your body that's causing all kinds of problems for you. You need emotional, mental restoration. You've got anxiety or different things going on. You need financial restoration. You need, there's something going on in a relationship that's important to you and things are broken and you need restoration. All across this room, I know there are a bunch of us who need restoration in a lot of different ways. So here's what I wanna ask you to do. If there's an area of your life where you need a specific area where you'd go, I need God's restoring touch. I wanna invite you right now to go ahead and stand to your feet. And it's not gonna be weird. You don't have to say anything. I'm not gonna call you out. We just wanna be able to pray for you. So if you are going, I need restoration in an area of my life, would you go ahead and stand? And we're gonna, we're gonna pray. And, and before we do that, if you're standing, just can you look around, please, and see how many other people are standing? I think when we get into a tough spot... We get into a tough spot. I think the enemy gets at us by making us believe we're the only ones. Oh, you know, church, everyone's got their act together. I'm the only one who's hurting. Well, guess what? We're all in this together. And for those of you that are seated, this is a participation time right here. You're, you're prayer war- this is your prayer warrior moment. You can join and pray along with me. You can tune me out completely and pray for the people around you. But all of us, this is us as a community interceding and praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are coming before you right now as a community, believing and knowing that you are a great restorer. We thank you for your word today that has reminded us that while our rebellion is great, your saving restorative love is greater. And we're standing before you right now just to say to you, Jesus, that we are in need of your restorative touch. God, there are some of us who we know we are running from you right now and we are living in rebellion. We are going our own way and we need to return to you. So right now, we say to you, Jesus, would you forgive our sin? Would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? We want to follow you and be near you and we thank you for your restorative forgiveness. God, some of us, we are in a financial situation where we just don't know what we're going to do, that things have been broken, and we just don't know how we're going to make it through the week or the month, and we need your restorative financial provision. God, would you bring restoration that only you can? God, some of us, we are struggling with anxiety. I know I'm so familiar with that myself, and our anxious thoughts are ruling over us. God, we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would soothe us and that you would calm us. Holy Spirit, would you restore what is misaligned in our minds? If there are any chemicals out of whack, would you bring about restoration and healing? God, some of us, we are in physical pain from a disease or an injury that has long overstayed its usefulness, and we're asking you, our great healer, to bring about our healing. God, some of us, we look at our lives and we see a relationship that is broken, and we don't know how it could ever be mended. God, what, might, what is impossible in human strength is possible with you. So we pray, would you bring about powerful and profound restoration? And God, if there's something, some of us today, we are standing and the area where we need restoration is not something I have named. And that area is unknown to me, but it is intimately and specifically known by you. So we are calling on you, our great God, to let your restorative power loose in our lives. What the enemy has meant for evil, would you work it for good? Where there has been pain, would you bring wholeness? Where there has been captivity, would you set us free? God, for the sake of your great name, would you show yourself to be powerful in the ways that you restore our lives? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen.